Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, cross-border solutions weekly podcast about everything transfer pricing. And today we have a very interesting show for you all. We're talking about a subject that gives even the smoothest taxpayers a huge dose of anxiety. We're talking about audits and everything you might want to know about them, why they happen, how to prevent them, and what to do when they're unavoidable. We have a special guest with us today, Manuel De Los Santos from the OE. ECD itself is with us on the line in Paris to provide some special insight. And as always, Mimi Song, cross-border solutions chief economist, is here to lend her own personal charm. But before we get going on overzealous tax authorities, tax scrutiny, penalties, and adjustments, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Swiss-based multinationals may have lucked out when Switzerland's corporate tax reform failed in 2017, but as of May 19th, the new reform is in, and sorry, but those quote-unquote special tax rates, they're out. Yes, we're aware that those blissfully low and individually negotiated tax breaks likely lured you there in the first place, well, that and along with all the chocolate, but here's the thing. For years, the EU and the OECD have had an eye on Switzerland's unique corporate tax system and the unfair competitive advantages it provides certain, quote unquote, multinational companies. You know who you are. The new reform, which goes into effect on January 1st, 2020, helps the country avoid the EU's blacklist. Not a bad thing, but it also does away with its biggest corporate draw. Swiss states, or cantons, as they're locally known, won't be able to negotiate preferential tax rates with individual companies anymore. Companies in each canton will all be subject to the same rate. In Geneva, it can be as high as 24.16%. The good news? To soften the blow, cantons will offer patent boxes, which lower tax rates on, well, patents. And research and development will be rewarded, too. You're welcome, Big Pharma. Tax collections from Canton status companies are estimated to increase by 2.3 billion Swiss francs, and revenue from companies without those preferential rates will decrease by 4.5 billion Swiss francs. So it is more equitable overall. Still, if the new tax system seems less desirable for your company, let me just remind you, the chocolate will still be there. Are you a tax resident of Belarus? You might be surprised if you operate in Belarus through a permanent establishment and benefit from Belarus-based income but are located elsewhere. Guess where you're paying taxes? Yep, beautiful, sunny Belarus. According to a recent guidance letter, any company that makes money off Belarus must register with Belarusian tax authorities, maintain tax accounting, and keep records of income, expenses, and taxable line items. You'll also have to submit tax returns in required documentation to tax authorities whenever your company is registered. And let me think, there was something else. Oh yeah, pay taxes. Subtlety is overrated if you ask the European Commission. At least that's what we gather from the watchdog's latest round of economic reports about member states. The commission recently called six countries onto the carpet and blatantly asked them to step up their efforts to prevent aggressive tax planning. Which countries are in the doghouse? Cyprus, Malta, Hungary, Ireland, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands for now. The move comes in response to criticism that despite noticeable tax leniency on the continent, there isn't a single European country on the EU's list of non-cooperative tax jurisdictions. And you got to admit, that's a little suspicious. The individual reports ask these countries to carefully review, quote, means of outbound payments. The countries have responded to a degree. The Netherlands' new tax reform includes withholding taxes on royalty and interest payments in case of abuse or payments to low tax jurisdictions. Ireland has taken steps to avoid aggressive tax planning, just not enough, as there's still evidence the revenue is escaping. Notional interest deduction regimes in certain tax residency rules are under scrutiny in Malta and Cyprus, and the high level of dividend interest in royalty payments as a percentage of GDP are raising concerns in Luxembourg. Hungary's complicated tax system may be at fault over there, so the Commission's message? Simplify, simplify, simplify. Sure, the Commission's direct approach may be unconventional, but it appears effective. While some countries have made more progress than others, all seem to at least be moving in the right direction. In fact, we can't help but wonder, what will the Commission ask for next? 
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. We're always excited about our guests on The Fiona Show, but today, even more so than usual, Manuel De Los Santos, the tax advisor at the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration, I know, what a get, right, has generously offered to share some of his insight on transfer pricing audits, international tax authorities, and those red flags that tell the tax police when something's not quite right. It's fair to say he knows the audit world very well, of course, from his time at the OECD, but also from his firsthand experience working at the Spanish Tax Administration, where he started his career. Building on that huge stepping stone, Manuel moved to the European Commission, where he addressed transfer pricing's role in competition law. And now at the OECD, he's working on a little project you might have heard of called the Tax Challenges of the Digital Economy. Despite being so busy, he's taken some time out for us today. It's great to have you here, Manuel. And with that, I will pass the mic to Mimi. Hi, Manuel. How are you? Hi, Mimi. Happy to talk to you. Happy to talk to you as well. I, how long have you been with the OECD now? Uh, I've been here for the last three years. That looks to me longer than it sounds. <laughs> it must be pretty. It must be pretty interesting, given all the different developments happening at the OECD today. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have to say, I'm obviously enjoying the ride, but it's it's been quite intense. Right, <laughs> right. Well, it's so nice meeting you, and we're gonna just you know start off a little bit about learning about your background, yep. right? So, how did you actually come to work at the OECD? Um, yeah, I mean, that's. I, I think that's a, um, a logical step, right? I think I started working um, in the Spanish tax authorities in 2007, and pretty soon I started mm -hmm. uh, focusing myself on international tax transfer pricing. Um, and then, I don't know, after like maybe 19 years of working on, on transfer pricing, uh, including a short stage in the European Commission, then I thought like it's, it's just time to try uh, to work from the place, you know, where the policy making is being done. Um, and I think that that was my, my initial uh, idea in order to join the OECD. And uh, luckily I made it. Um, September 2016 was when I started. Amazing. And quite happy, quite happy to have joined uh, for this period. Um, you know, even at some point it can be said that the BEPS project was over at that time, but I have to say that, you know, the implementation phase of, of BEPS has been quite challenging, quite interesting from an intellectual point of view. And now we are in really, um, in a real, or having real fun with all this um, digital project. Uh, it is quite challenging. It's a nice, nice time to be here at the OECD. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you, yes, you might have joined when the BEPS project, uh, air quote, completed or was finished, but there's there's lots to be done after the initial framework um, was established, right? Right. So, you know, you, you, you clearly have a lot of experience from the tax authority perspective. So what is it like working in an international tax governing organization versus when you are at the tax administration? Yeah, I think I think the difference is not only about being international. Like uh, it's also uh, because before when I was working for the tax authorities, you are looking at the transfer pricing stuff from a different perspective. That is mainly the implementation of the transfer mm -hmm. pricing rules, and that's the idea that all the you know, tax authorities have in mind. Whereas if you move to the OECD, it's more like uh, or it's closer to the work that you know Treasury can be doing in the sense that you are deciding about designing the policy, uh, the fiscal policy. Um, 
I think the, the, the most challenging thing here is that you are deciding the, the policy, but not for a single country, but for a big crowd, right? So we have now 130 countries in the inclusive framework, and that's quite challenging to come up with wow. rules that has to be implemented um, for all those countries at the same time on consistent on consistent basis. Um, and I think that that's the main challenging, but at the same time, it's the most appealing thing. Uh, obviously, you also have other other different issues related to that. That is mainly, you know, when you work in an international environment, you have different culture, people with different backgrounds, which is amazingly enriching, but it's also difficult to deal with uh, on daily basis. So I think when I joined, someone told me like, you have a super open minded after being here for six months, and it's completely true. It's uh, it, it clearly changes your mind and your perception about the that's that's amazing i mean having to build a lot of consensus across all of those different cultures and personalities it, it definitely challenging but at the at the same time enlightening yeah right? and i think that's something that's usually overlooked from outside um if you think about the transfer pricing guidelines i mean you have to think or we have to think about it as a document that is actually written by a committee. I mean, obviously, we in the Secretariat, we are leading the draft, but at the end of the day, every single world, and I really mean every single world, has to be agreed on a consensus basis by those 130 countries. Yep. So that's really challenging. Wow, wow. And, and besides the Digital Economy Project, I know you had just mentioned that, Manuel, what other current projects are you working on? Uh, or is that enough? That's actually a lot, <laughs> yeah. right? So. <laughs> yeah, when I joined, when I joined uh, 2016, um, I started working on the attribution of profit to be. Uh, then I also worked on the revision of Chapter 2 of the Transfer Pricing Guidelines about the profit speed method, the transactional profit speed method. And I think it was like mm -hmm. mid-2017 or late-2017, I started leading the project on financial transaction. That is also like a very challenging one that's been amazing in leading that project. And I'm happy to say that we are close to finalization. We are still not done, but we have something very close to final. And we are hoping to have a new chapter of the transfer pricing guidelines released uh, by the end of the year at the latest. Wow, that's that's amazing. And, and, you know, based on all this policy work that's being done at the OECD now, it, you know, your general thoughts about the current transfer pricing landscape, what do you think that, what do you think has been happening as a result of the BEPS initiative? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's related to the, to the first question also about uh, me being part of the OECD at that particular moment. I think we have in really extraordinary times, um, you know, since the inception of the transfer pricing, as we know it, I don't know, in the 1920s, uh, and the reliance on the arm's principle, and that principle has been governing the cross-border transaction uh, quite quite well, um, and now we are in a situation that is uh, slightly, well, it's not slightly, it's, it's quite different in the sense that we are starting to have uh, quite a number of jurisdictions that are rising increase, an uh, increased level of satisfaction uh, related to the outcome of the Anglian principle. And, um, and I think that's, that's actually reflected in the program of work that we uh, approved or the, the inclusive framework approved and it was released to the public in late May this year. And, and then you can see, there you can see how, you know, the jurisdiction that formed the inclusive framework are asking for a different um, principle or different ideas to govern mm. the allocation of profits. And I think that that dissatisfaction comes from two different ideas. I think the first one is that, you know, the Avalanche principle is failing to deliver the outcome that market jurisdiction are expecting to have, meaning that, you know, mm -hmm. um, they understand that the Avalanche principle is under allocating profit to market jurisdiction. And I think the other underlying idea is trying to enhance the tax certainty. I mean, it's, it's well known that there are certain areas of transfer pricing that are highly developed and are subject to dispute between transfer pricing um, authorities and, and taxpayers. So I think those two points are, are, are actually pushing jurisdiction 
to, to think about a new framework, a new landscape that it seems to be is going to be quite different from the outline principle as, as we know it today. Right, right. And, you know, I think this is a good segue into our, our main topic here, which is audit risk and, and red flags for auditors, because, you know, the idea of getting tax certainty or achieving tax certainty, it's, it's, it's a great idea. Now, we haven't necessarily gotten there quite yet. What are we seeing currently in the audit space today? I don't know if you've been experiencing this, Manuel, or have you heard a... What's going on in the audit world? So I think it's very much it's very much related. I mean, the landscape we have today in terms of uh, main audits or main topics to be audited uh, in transfer pricing is very much related to the concerns raised by jurisdiction in the context of the of the digitalization of the economy. So um, it's I think it's it's quite common today having situation where. You know, tax authorities in market jurisdiction are claiming an extra piece of profit to be allocated to the market jurisdiction. And usually, you know, they, they start with uh, analyzing distribution activities, for instance, or marketing activities. Under our traditional functional analysis, they claim to have the right to tax an extra piece of profit in that market jurisdiction, mainly you know, under the assumption that the functions uh, undertaken in the market jurisdiction are contributing, for instance, to global marketing intangibles or trademarks or the like. Um, so I think that's the main issue we have today when it comes to the transfer pricing audits. And obviously, it's pretty much related to the point we were discussing before about the digital project. And, you know, one of the things we need to focus and we need to try to sort out in order to provide tax certainty to both sides of the table, let's say, to the tax authorities and the taxpayers. Right, and 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 to your point, you're you're talking about jurisdictions, perhaps like like China, that want to, you know, understand the, uh, the benefit associated with location savings, right? And that's another area or lever that they're able to pull to perhaps increase their taxable income in their local jurisdiction. Right, I mean, it's not, it's not yet a question of, of singling out countries, but I think it's a general perception mm -hmm. that uh, tax authorities in market jurisdiction are finding really hard to draw the line that we have, let's say, between Chapter 1 and Chapter 6 when it comes to that division between intangibles for transfer pricing purposes and those market mm -hmm. features that should be considered only as um, comparability factors. But in practice, uh, we are having, I mean, the, the, the feedback we have here at the OECD is that countries are really struggling with that difference or making to make that difference. And, and that's, that's one of the tension points that we have on the table in the context of the digitalization of the economy. Yeah, that, and that's almost a definitional point in some ways, right? Like what is considered an intangible in one jurisdiction versus another jurisdiction. Yeah. And, so, you know, what's interesting, too, is just the number of countries that have increased their their transfer pricing or tax examiner staff and, and examiners related to transfer pricing audits and things of that nature. Manuel, you, you've seen that many countries are now devoting more resources to this issue, correct? Yeah, yeah, completely correct. And I think, I mean... Yeah, from, from one point of view, um, it's obvious that it's difficult to, to imagine a situation where a tax authority is, um, you know, auditing an M&E group and is not going to have a look at the transfer pricing policy of that group. I mean, uh, you know, the increased importance of cross-border transaction at intra-group level, it's something we can't disregard. I and mean, that's obviously a driver of the increased number of audits on transfer pricing that we are facing. But I think the point you are also making is perfectly valid, and it's also related to, you know, tax authorities are becoming more and more fluent, if you like, in terms of transfer pricing analysis, and they are becoming more confident in order to get into the complexities of a transfer pricing audit. And I think that's, that's also part of the reason why we are seeing today um, an increased number of tax audits uh, on, on transfer pricing. And if I could just take one moment from here and ask Fiona. Fiona, can you give us some examples of where we're seeing increased scrutiny? Greetings, all. Finally nice to make an appearance on my own show. 
As far as examples of where we are seeing increased scrutiny, let's turn to my old stomping grounds of the UK, shall we? In the United Kingdom, the HMRC raised nearly £1.7 million from transfer pricing adjustments for the tax year 2017 to 2018, representing an historic high and all from multinational corporations. What's interesting is this is slightly more than the figure raised from the year prior, by just over £50 million, and itself an increase from the year prior by more than 90%. The Financial Times also reported recently that the HMRC thinks that corporations have underpaid 2017 to 18 taxes by 27.8 billion British pounds. They also believe that US multinationals are responsible for 17% of that amount in our increasing investigations. Canada is also cracking down. They proposed investing 91 million Canadian dollars to tax compliance in 2018's federal budget. Total investment toward improved compliance, they proposed to almost 1.1 billion Canadian dollars since the 2016 federal budget. The CRA created multidisciplinary teams of specialists to address complex and emerging tax issues and also to combat tax avoidance and transfer pricing abuses, especially new IT. T solutions allow the CRA to assess the compliance risk of the entire large business population annually. The agency reported 194 million Canadian dollars in transfer pricing penalties for the period ending March 31st, 2017. Also in 2017, the CRA hired an additional 100 auditors to conduct their transfer pricing investigations. Lastly, average penalties increased from Canadian dollars 3.4 million in 2012 to 15.9 million in 2017. So tough stuff. In speaking of tough stuff, Mr. Matthew, let's not forget what's been going on in Poland since PEPs. Transfer pricing and aggressive tax planning assessments in Poland increased from 10.7 million Polish zloty in 2015 to 2.3 billion Polish zloty in 2017. So, Manuel, you know, the spirit of the OECD BEPs Action 13 um, do you think that the spirit was should encompass full transparency across different jurisdictions and countries? Was the intention to create transparency? Yeah, I think I think that was one of the main uh, drivers of Action 13, is providing tax tax authorities and different jurisdictions with um, you know the information that they needed to perform an appropriate risk assessment. And I think that on the other side of the of the of the issue, it's also to make sure that that information is only used for risk assessment purposes and it's not done, it's not used for, uh, you know, making any kind of transfer pricing audit or adjustment directly overlooking the, the proper transfer pricing analysis. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's becoming a game changer uh, for tax authorities that they feel much more comfortable about having right. um, you know, first-hand information from the taxpayers before getting into the audit. Um, and I think it's been used for, for both purposes in the sense that it's not just performing a risk assessment in order to capture um, taxpayers in, in, in a given moment, but also to exclude from transfer pricing audits taxpayers that seem to be complying under the standards of the actions of TV. Right. Has the OECD started doing some analysis on the CPC reports that have been submitted? And actually, is the OECD monitoring that a little bit in terms of different country usage of the data and how they're looking at it? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, as you know, uh, CPC report is it's a minimum standard. And as any minimum standard during the VEPS project, it's subject to this peer uh, review process. So that means that here from the Secretariat, we are leading this peer review exercise and we are checking out that the information is used for the purpose it's supposed to be used, but also I think more importantly for, um, for uh, taxpayers, that the information is shared in a way that the confidentiality of the data, it's, um, it's uh, guaranteed for, for the taxpayers. So yeah, I mean, we are obviously keeping an eye on that through this peer review process and also subject to the review of the CBC that we have to undertake in 2020 yeah. to next year. And, and to your earlier point, I mean, all of this transparency probably causes an increase in audit and potential audit risk for multinationals who, who may not have been transpa as transparent as they had been before. And, and many multinationals 
perhaps manage their transfer pricing policies purely on a unilateral basis, right, as opposed to a bilateral basis, which, uh, you know, changes the perspective in some ways. But for our audience, Emmanuel, what does an audit mean for a multinational company? Well, I mean, um, luckily I haven't been on the other side of the table, Mm -hmm. but I guess (laughs) the answer must be, quite yeah. a stressful process. Uh, you know, You've been have, on the good side of the table, right? <laughs> uh, when I started doing the work for the tax, yeah, I started for the tax authorities at the same time that some of my colleagues from the from the university started to work as, as tax auditors, and they were always referring to me to the same story, like, you know, even if like a taxpayer is completely convinced about being fully compliant, whenever you get a notification from tax authorities, or oh, you get into really stress. Um, and, and but the, like um, I think the main the main issue for for a for an enemy group when it's being audited is like it's a really resource intense procedure. It's it's time consuming and sometimes um, you know enemy groups need to produce documentation for the purpose of a tax audit that in the normal course of businesses they would not need to prepare like. Um, I don't know. I think it's also related to the work we are doing um, currently on the on the digital project. But if you think about, for instance, segmenting the profit and loss account, and, you know, business line analysis or product line analysis, and you know this kind of information that an M&A group can have uh, for internal purposes, it's usually demanded or required for tax authorities in order to you know perform the transfer pricing audit. And it's obviously something that many groups may need to produce on the spot, in the sense that maybe they don't need that information for commercial purposes. So that adds an extra layer of, of effort and difficulty to the whole process. Um, and I guess that also, I mean, one of the concerns that many um, groups are voicing to us, um, it's about the confidentiality and that relation of trust between the tax authorities and the taxpayer. Well, I think it's it's one of the main difficulties that you can see, depending on, on certain countries, obviously, but you know there are countries where we are having that feeling of um, tax authorities not having like the whole trust of taxpayers in order to disclose the information mm-hmm. during tax audits. And I think that's also like a very stressy um, issue for for many groups. Yeah, no, definitely, a, a, definitely stressful. Audits are stressful on both sides of the fence. But you mentioned you mentioned something interesting. Yeah. You know, as you're describing that and the segmenting the financials and being prepared for an audit. And most countries, um, and and your experience, you know, you were with France specifically. They require contemporaneous documentation. So when you do. Uh, that you know when you do ask for that and, and submit an IDR, some countries give uh, some lead time, right? But as a tax authority, your expectation, right, is still that that report was prepared contemporaneously. Is that correct? Yeah, that's something that's something we didn't cover uh, in the transfer pricing documentation on Action 13. It's something subject to domestic legislation. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure about the degree of flexibility of the different tax authorities when it comes to required bad documentation. But I mean, the feeling I have from my previous experience is that obviously that um, documentation has to be contemporary. Contemporary. Um, and in terms of um, you know this, the, the deadline you have to submit that information, my feeling is that tax authorities might be. Um, applying that quite strictly uh, based on their domestic law. But as I said, that's something we can't work on because it's based on, on that domestic legislation. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So uh, how do tax authorities actually pick their targets? Like, what, are the, what are the main signals that actually are red flags for auditors uh, that basically will trigger them to say, hmm, we got to audit that company? Yeah, I mean, I've been quite out of business of, of tax auditing for, for like maybe five years, something like that. But I still have, <laughs> okay. I still have the feedback uh, from the different delegates that they come to the OECD, in particular to work in 46 on transfer pricing. And they are raising the concerns that they are checking out um, related to many groups. But I mean, before getting into those flags, let's say, uh, I think that's an important factor that is random. So um, believe it or not, like there is, there is an important factor related to the random aspect of this analysis in the sense that um, it's not always driven. I mean, the decision of a start an audit is not always driven by a specific fact, but also, you know, this large numbers um, rule uh, sometimes lead to picking up uh, many groups or, or sectors in a random way. Um, but beyond beyond that factor, I think obviously, I mean, there are a number, number of issues that I think everyone um, has heard about, like, for instance, if you go to a business restructuring, that's something that for the last five, 10 years has triggered a lot, uh, quite a big number of, of audits, uh, not only in terms of transfer pricing, but also related to whether that business restructuring could lead to the existence, for instance, for permanent establishment under the dependent agent permanent establishment clause, et cetera, et cetera. Um, obviously, I think um, if, if an MNA group is reporting losses for a, for a long period of time or a number of fiscal periods, that's another issue that usually tax authorities want to check out. Um, I think another important factor um, is, you know, depending on, on jurisdiction, but there are quite a number of jurisdictions where at the same time you are filing your corporate tax return, you also need to provide transfer pricing documentation or at least a summary of that transfer pricing documentation that will be used for risk assessment purposes. And I think that's a crucial aspect where taxpayers need to focus uh, because if you get that wrong, then of course you are going to be called um, to explain, and that could also trigger um, a tax audit. Um, I think, like uh, also mainly in developing countries, I have the impression that there are a number of tax audits related to intra-group services, and I think the reason for that might be also related to something we were discussing before, like. You know, when you start getting expertise on transfer pricing and you are becoming confident on using the or, or applying the technicalities of transfer pricing, it seems logical to start with intra-group services in the sense that it's something that you can audit on isolation from other transfer pricing issues. And it's a good starting point to check out the, the capabilities of the tax administration to deal with transfer pricing issues. Um, um, but I think that overall those aspects, um, today we are facing that situation we were discussing before about tax authorities in market jurisdiction, um, you know, um, auditing uh, distribution and marketing arrangements in order to determine whether those um, arrangements, or better to say whether the functionality that Germany Group is undertaking in the market jurisdiction, it's contributing somehow to the global value of the m group and then claiming an extra piece of profit to the market jurisdiction. I think that's, that's kind of a very broad, but I think accurate landscape of, of the different reasons that could lead to a transfer pricing audit today. That's very interesting. Fiona, what's another red flag? In two words, Matt, profit volatility. Now CFOs and tax directors tend to think, of course it's volatile. It's normal given the markets, but the thing is that's not how tax authorities think. 
Companies who perform the same function year over year should expect to earn the same returns year over year. Situations where there is a high dependency on intercompany transactions and consistent returns are expected because of controlled pricing inside the company and the profit-based method dictates that a company should earn a routine return. Volatile profits could signal to tax authorities that the company could be manipulating transfer prices. And you know, we actually contacted the Canadian Revenue Agency, that's the CRA, and we asked them to tell us about Canada's audit process. Uh, here are a few points uh, that they mentioned. Uh, when the CRA requests transfer pricing documentation, it does not necessarily mean that an audit will occur. Uh, if an audit is initiated, though, the taxpayer will be contacted by the CRA to gather uh, additional information, such as copies of agreements, etc. The CRA may issue queries and request interviews to get a better understanding of the taxpayer's business and the transfer pricing transactions under review. Uh, if no issues are identified, the audit is closed and the taxpayer is informed. Uh, there are transfer pricing issues. If that is the case, uh, the taxpayer will receive a proposal letter outlining the CRA's position. The taxpayer and the CRA will have many opportunities to discuss this proposal. If the CRA decides to reassess, the taxpayer will receive a notice of reassessment informing them of the agency's final decision. Uh, the company under audit has the option to file a notice of objection as well as apply for a mutual agreement procedure with the CRA's Competent Authority Services Division. This division performs negotiations and resolutions of transfer pricing disputes with foreign tax administrations regarding double taxation or taxation not in accordance with Canadian tax treaties. So, Manuel, earlier you were saying that when a when a multinational, you know, they provide their their snapshot or the description of the intercompany transactions and or the documentation in and of itself, that if the facts and circumstances aren't presented correctly or, you know, in line with the expected well, results, that could be a problem, right? And that's what triggers an audit, yes? Yeah, I think um, that's that's uh, one of the main issues we are having in the transfer pricing landscape. Um, the, the, and I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a broader aspect in the sense, or a broader issue in the sense that you know, transfer pricing has like an important advantage. I would say like a key advantage that at the same time could be one of the most important downsides of the transfer pricing analysis of the underlying principle. And it's the flexibility of the principle in the sense that, you know, if you go through the transfer pricing guidelines, there are a lot of references to the facts and circumstances analysis. And that's obviously intended to, to flag the aspect that different businesses will have different value drivers and then we have different aspects to be checked out when you are doing an audit or when you are, um, you know, pricing your transactions as a taxpayer in, in, first, uh, in the first stage. But at the same time, since, you know, the, out, the final outcome of the transfer pricing analysis derives from the interpretation of those facts and circumstances, that could actually lead to different interpretations on the side of the tax administration or the taxpayer. So again, I think that's very much related to the current work stream we have on the digital project and the discussion we were having before about, you know, in the context of this new um, uh, stream, the, the addressing the tax challenges of the digitalization of the economy, one of the main aspects we have to, to bear in mind is that we need to provide certainty that maybe require requires us to go beyond this factual analysis and maybe going for something that could be more formalized or more prescriptive than what we are used to under the current transfer plan. Right, right. I'm just going to interrupt here quickly with our first CPE word. That word is skeptical, as in tax authorities are very skeptical that multinational companies are paying their fair share of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always find our code words embedded in the podcast to be hilarious, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Not sending any subliminal messages. Yeah. <laughs> We're just maybe that's our own anxiety coming out. So let's recap, right? In terms of a multinational's potential to get audited, number one, it's actually random. Anyone is at risk, right? That's first and foremost. And if you do get audited, 
your first line of defense would be your yeah. transfer pricing documentation. Yes. Yeah, I think um, like the transfer pricing documentation is key uh, when you are facing a transfer pricing audit. Obviously, um, it's I mean for any tax authority is a starting point. It's really a starting point uh, where the tax authorities try to get into the business model, try to get into the uh, in understanding what's the M&A group policy. Uh, the commercial reasons that drive the m group in, you know, allocating profit to different jurisdictions in different ways. And then obviously, uh, in order to understand how the m group has been pricing those transactions. Um, I think it's, it, it, I mean, I think sometimes, uh, you know, transfer pricing documentation is presented in a way that, you know, they, you, you can have voices saying, Transfer pricing documentation is like a, is something that triggers tax audits. Uh, but I would think about transfer pricing documentation in a completely different way because, I mean, what I've seen in my practical experience is that if you are um, able to produce an accurate transfer pricing documentation that is, you know, solid and, and explanatory, I think that gives a lot of comfort to tax authorities and it's very much likely you're going to have a successful outcome from the taxpayer's perspective going through the audit with a solid uh, transfer pricing documentation. Right. And, and, and having a document that's actually going to meet all the requirements, the local requirements and the questions that they're asking in, in, you know, upfront as opposed to <laughs> at a later point in time. Right. So, yeah. and n- number two, the other risky area here is clearly companies who are undergoing a lot of business restructurings, right? And that's that's also an area of, of potential audit risk. But, Manuel, to your point, the documentation should be able to craft the narrative and the business rationalization of why that restructuring took place and how it impacts the value chain on an overall basis, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the main points that taxpayers have to bear in mind when they are facing tax authorities. And I mean, it's, I think the main, the, or the first point that it has to be clarified and explained to tax authorities, it's how the business operates, right? I mean, because tax authorities obviously uh, have the technical expertise uh, when it comes to applying transfer pricing in particular, but it's also obvious that, you know, from the tax authority's perspective, even from the OECD perspective, we lack the knowledge about the business and how the business operates, which are the commercial re- the commercial re- reasons uh, for a business to operate in a particular way. And I think that's the first aspect that taxpayer uh, would be required to clarify. So the way that you explain your business, the better you justify the commercial reasons behind, you know, a business restructuring, for instance, in that particular case we have at hand, um, the most probable is going to be um, uh, um, a positive outcome of the, of the tax. Right, right. And then, and then third, but definitely not least that we've, you know, talked about so far is the local jurisdictional perspective on distribution versus marketing tangibles and sort of the characterization of the intercompany transaction, right? And, and uh, uh, you know, their perspective on what are the key value drivers. But once again, this is also about controlling that narrative and, and making sure that the taxpayer controls and explains the business. Because, uh, you know, Emmanuel, tell me if this is an incorrect assumption. Tax authorities could have a preconceived notion of what that business does and what the value drivers are, right? And, and in order for the taxpayer yeah. to be able to, um, you know, present their story correctly, they have to get in front of it and sort of, um, you know, control that story instead of letting a tax authority, you know, assume. Yeah, I mean, when, if, if you think about this, this type of tax audits related to distribution marketing activities, um, I think taxpayers and tax authorities are all in agreement when it comes to recognize, if that's the case at hand, that there are, you know, functions, assets, and risks um, um, located in the market jurisdiction, and those functions, assets, and risks should be remunerated. I think the main struggle 
tax authorities and, and taxpayers have related to that point is that how you um, assess the importance of those functions, assets, and risk in relationship with the whole value chains of the m and &E group. And that's where, um, you know, the explanation from the taxpayer is really uh, appreciated and really needed in order to really, um, you know, understand the relative value. Because if the understanding of the tax authorities of the business model um, leads to the conclusion that those activities happening in country are contributing to the value brand, then obviously, I mean, the, the logical consequence would be to reallocate part of the profit to the, um, the control transactions to the market jurisdiction. So I think um, that's why I, I, I feel the most important point for taxpayer in those situations is to explain the business, to uh, explain the commercial rationale behind those um, decisions. I mean, that way, I guess, like, you know, any kind of prejudice that tax authorities right. may have uh, could be yep. you know, agreed. And, you know, in this current landscape, right, with the globalization of the digital economy, do you think that there's been an increased focus or even an increased audit risk in any particular industries like technology companies? You know, I, I would say maybe, gosh, it's like 15 years ago, uh, or even 10, pharmaceuticals were always under, under the radar, right? But do you think that that focus might have changed recently, Manuel, or what are your thoughts? Um, I, well, I think it's... Uh... I think it might be the external perspective that, you know, tech companies are under the radar uh, for tax authorities. But I guess also it's partially because, um, you know, the, the amounts of transfer pricing adjustment in, in that particular industry, it's quite, it's quite important. And it's also in the public debate, um, you know, the, whether the tech companies are paying or not the first share of taxes. So I think that's why these companies are like on top of the tax debate. But you know, when you get into the tax authorities risk assessment procedures, um, I wouldn't say that that's like you know uh, that's that's an accurate vision of what tax authorities are doing. I think they are doing much broad um, audits than pure tech companies. Okay, okay. But I guess that I mean it's it's you know it's out there like in the public debate. So it's yep. It gets uh, or it captures much more attention than other. Yeah, audits. that's probably. But I true. don't think it's gonna. It's, it's been like a particular um, stress from the tax authorities. Right, right. But I, I mean, you know, based on what you're saying, Manuel, then then no one's safe, really, right? <laughs> Everyone's potentially under audit, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's well, so so <laughs> we are all we are all we are all we are all taxpayers. We are all taxpayers. So we are, we are not that's right. There's more. nowhere to hide. <laughs> <laughs> so, what 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 are some of the ways that you know taxpayers can be more proactive about uh, you know not getting audited? I mean, getting audited is to your point, right? There there's lots of potential triggers, but then. Once you're pretend, once you're selected, perhaps what what are ways that taxpayers can try to be proactive about potentially not getting audited or or even under audit, not getting further questioned? Yeah, I mean, just, just coming back to that point of the of the randomly um, uh, aspect of this process, I think there's something also there's a small nuance, a little nuance on that in the sense that um, you know taxpayer can um, obtain. Um, certain level of, of certainty to, for instance, an APA or something related or something similar to that, uh, that could also help to reduce the likelihood of being audited. Um, and I think one of the main concerns that many groups have uh, when, when they are thinking or considering about asking for an APA is that it usually takes a lot of time to get the APA done or agreed with the tax authority. But if you think about, you know, the time that a tax audit takes to be completed, um, I think it's quite worth it to explore, you know, this, this, this stream about asking for an APA, getting to an APA, and then that provides you some comfort for a number of periods that the tax authorities are not going to knock on your door to check out if you're you know, controlled transaction is aligned with the answering principle or not. 
but in any case, I mean, coming to the question you were saying, you were, you were posing, I think um, the, w once you get into a talk solid, um, I think the, the, the first thing and the main point is to create a sense of confidence and trust with tax, tax authorities in the sense that the taxpayer has to be ready to disclose you know, information in order to let tax authorities to, um, to understand what is going on and how the control transaction, if we are in a transfer pricing world, how that transaction has to be priced. And, and obviously, I mean, that's easier said than done because sometimes, um, you know, tax authorities or when you want to undertake a transfer pricing audit, uh, tax authorities require information that, as we were saying before, is not readily available for taxpayers, and that requires time and that requires resources to be invested in order to provide the information that tax authorities are requiring. So I think it's it's um, a two-side or two-way street. It's like you know striking the right balance between what the tax authorities claim. Um, in terms of information or documentation to get comfort, but also in sense in terms right. of what the taxpayer can produce and reasonably produce in order to generate that information or to handle that information to the, to the tax authorities. But I guess um, right, the, right. the overarching idea of all that would be like the better you are able to explain your business um, and the commercial rationale behind the decisions you you take in order to enter into the different uh, intra-group transactions, the safer you are going to be when the discussion in front of the tax authorities move to pricing those transactions. Let's say that in the transfer pricing world, we have this two-stage. Um, so first, we want to understand what is going on, what is the, you know, the control transaction, what we refer to as the delineation of the control transaction. And then you come to the uh, pricing of that transaction. So the better you can explain uh, what is behind the decision taken to enter into that transaction and how it's been pictured, the easier is going to be the discussion during the transfer pricing audit in terms of pricing. That right. Okay. And and what about intercompany agreements? Are are, are intercompany agreements helpful during the audit process? Or I know it's also you know necessary, but but is it going to, you know, help during an audit at all to have that in place? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, that's something we were discussing um, during the BEPS project and, you know, the revision of Chapter 1 of the Transfer Pricing Guidelines. And even if now the new Chapter 1 goes a bit beyond what is in the contract, let's say that, you know, if the conduct of the parties uh, differ from the contract, then you know tax authorities may have or may regard uh, to the actual conduct of the parties rather than the contract. But in any case, it's quite clear in the transfer pricing guidelines that intra-group agreements or intercompany agreements are the real starting point of the transfer pricing audit. So in that sense, again, it's it's something that really provides comfort to tax authorities and somehow sets the framework within the discussion is going to happen. Um, so again, having this this um, documentation well prepared, and you know, with with um, having this solid documentation that is explaining what is going on between the related parties, that's that's really key in order to get a um, satisfactory answer for for okay. the tax authority. And I am going to interrupt here just very quickly with our second CPE code word. That word is dangerous, as in it's very dangerous to ignore requests from the tax authorities. <laughs> that, that actually supports what you're saying, Manuel, right? <laughs> so I, I actually think this has been great, Manuel. I, I, your perspective is, is, is uh, phenomenal, and, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Manuel. Now I'll hand it back over to Matt. All right. Thank you. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp thank you so much manuel uh we're actually what we have time left for is one of my favorite parts of the show we call this segment uh what we want to know and here's how it works uh, we're gonna put you in the hot seat and fire a rapid round of questions are you ready <laughs> i think so <laughs> That was your first question. That was a trick question. Anyway, here we go. Uh, what quality or character trait do you think is the most important uh, for working in an international organization? Oh, that's an easy one to reply, but a very difficult one to apply. And I think the answer is flexibility. You have to be very flexible. You have to have like a really open mind because you have so many different cultures interacting with you at the same time. And sometimes you realize that you are not talking the same language. And it's not a question of the language in itself. See what I mean? It's not about English or French or whatever. It's about the cultural background behind each of us. And that's the thing for which you have to be really open-minded um, yeah, in order to make it. And Manuel, uh, thinking of your biggest mentor, what have you learned from him or her? Um, I think, yeah, I think I have now, like, two or three people in mind that have been, um, you know, teaching me different aspects. Obviously, I mean, putting to the side the technical, the technicalities of transfer pricing, that is always, like, really appreciated. But I think, um, you know, again, like, thinking a bit out of, out of the box, while that's difficult to say when you, you dedicate yourself to tax, it's kind of, you know, a traditional thing, uh, but it's still, I think it's a very important aspect um, also related to this idea of flexibility in order to get ready to whatever it can come at some point. So not be fixed at all. And I think that feature, for instance, is very uh, important in the landscape we have today uh, with this changing environment where, you know, like things are moving so fast that from one week to another, we have to change our mindset and get ready to the next, the next challenge. Of course, of course. And what's your coping mechanism for work stress? Um, yeah, I have a very, very easy one. That is, I, I try to work out every day over lunchtime. So I'm skipping the nice time of lunch with my colleagues, and I'm going, I'm going to work out. And they think, it's, they think I'm doing that for like a physical reason, but it's not. It's actually a mental one. I think it's the only way I can, I can keep my mind on my shoulders. <laughs> Because, I mean, you at some point, the, it's, it's quite an intense um, uh, time here at the OECD and it's very challenging and you need to have some, you know, um, way of, of releasing your pressure. And the way I handle that is, is to work it out, to be honest. What is your biggest everyday challenge? Um, that's a good one. I think... I think the biggest challenge we have um, today, I, I think, like putting putting this question in the context of the digital uh, project, that is the main thing we have here at the OCD now, is trying to accommodate two different visions for the project. So we have, let's say, the political point of view about those ideas of, you know, we need to reallocate uh, more profit to market jurisdiction, we need to rebalance the taxing rights. Uh, but on the other side, we have the technical point of view of that discussion, and sometimes it's difficult to, to, to fix or to fit the technical aspects in the political commitment that has been achieved. So I think that's the main challenge we are facing now, and or even on a daily basis, is how we can build out something from a technical point of view that is going to deliver the outcome that, you know, like the G20 countries and the Jersey Framework members are and I'd be happy to have. Indeed, indeed. Uh, people define success in different ways. What would you say is your definition? 
Oh, that that's also a good one. Um, I think to me, like, to me, being successful is just try to be better than yesterday. I think that's that's the standard I have. It's not about making it or not. It's just you look at yourself and you say, like, yesterday I was able to do this, and I reached to this point. Today I'm challenging myself, and I try to get a bit farther. Um, regardless of whether you make it or not, getting that far, at least you try. And I think that's that's you know that's the way to to get yourself moving and to improve. And I think that's my definition of success. It's not it's not a final stage. It's more like a process. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun, and what a great show today. Listeners, I hope there's something in there that can help protect you from transfer pricing audits, and if you want to get more great advice about transfer pricing, subscribe to The Fiona Show on iTunes, and we'll fill you in on the latest and greatest every week. And don't forget about our spinoff podcast. Fiona's very busy these days, obviously. The Fiona Show, hot off the press, where we dish on transfer pricing headlines and who's making them every week. This podcast is engineered and co-hosted by yours, Truly, Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer and writes our scripts. Until next time, folks, this is Matthew DeMello, hoping your week and all those that follow are audit-free. 